This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. For more than 150 years, the story of a common man from the Smoky Mountains has captured our imaginations and inspired us to celebrate his image in song, story, and cinema. This is the story of one of America's best-known and most recognized folk heroes. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, to tell us the real story of Davy Crockett. One of the truly iconic figures of the American frontier is David Crockett. He was a legend in his own lifetime. Now, he certainly had tales spun about him that were hyperbolic or entirely fictional. But that was only because his real-life rise from backwoodsman to congressman and his extraordinary adventures were heroic and quintessentially American. He stood as a symbol of the new American, the man of the West, and the future of the new republic. He lived at the dawn of the age called Manifest Destiny, the time of an expanding America that is moving west. Crockett is born just 10 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence in a log cabin in Greene County, Tennessee, on August 17, 1786. Davy Crockett is a third-generation frontiersman and becomes the fifth of John and Rebecca Crockett's nine children. Davy's father, John, is one of the famous over-mountain men who fights in the pivotal American victory at the Battle of Kings Mountain in 1780. But while he is away fighting during the American Revolution, John's parents are slaughtered by Cherokee, who ally themselves with the British to take advantage of the war to raid and pillage. One of John's brothers is badly wounded in the attack and left for dead, and another is taken captive by the Cherokee and made a slave for 17 years. Now, born into this rugged, patriotic environment of pioneering mountain folk, Davy learns marksmanship at a young age, both for hunting and for protection against marauding Indians. Here's Crockett biographer Buddy Levy. Crockett came from a tradition of woodsmen, and he would have learned from his father and his uncles how to hunt. He learned how to track. He learned how to identify sign, scat, broken twigs. He also learned rough and tumble fighting from his older brothers. Here's historians Stephen Harden and David Eisenbach. Crockett's a jokester. He's remarkably funny. And he's affable. People like him. Being about six or seven by the creek, running into another bar. Well, Tennessee at the time was still the American frontier. You got wild animals, you got fights, and it was in this world where there's no kind of solid established law that David Crockett, you know, begins the process of becoming the myth. By the time Davy is 12, his father bounds him out to a perfect stranger to travel 400 miles on foot in a cattle drive to the eastern seaboard with no arrangements for his eventual return home. Three months of intensive labor pass before Davy travels alone in snow and on foot back to his mountain home where his family runs a tavern. But Davy is in for a surprise. His parents decide he will benefit from formal schooling. He isn't thrilled with confinement in a classroom, but his father is paying for it 
So Davy accepts the inevitable. I went four days and had just begun to learn my letters a little when I had an unfortunate falling out with a boy much larger and older than myself, Davy Crockett. Davy begins playing hooky from school, but after a week, the schoolmaster contacts John Crockett. Davy now thinks he'll be whipped by both the schoolmaster and his own father. My father told me he would whip me if I didn't start immediately to the school. Finding me rather too slow about starting, he gathered about a two-year-old hickory stick and broke after me. I put out with all my might, and soon we were both up to our top speed. But mind me, not on the schoolhouse road, for I was trying to get as far the other way as possible. Davy Crockett, 1834. Davy doesn't stop running, and is soon on another cattle drive to the eastern seaboard. For the next two years, he has more adventures than most people have in a lifetime. Davy returns home just shy of his 15th birthday. Here's Crockett historians Gary Foreman and Paul Hutton. David has well reached the age of puberty, and his growth is enormous. He has grown several inches. He's changed his, his uh, features, and he is now a young man. He's no longer the little boy that ran away from home. When Davy got back to the tavern, it was nighttime, and the evening meal was being served to the herders and teamsters. He moved unannounced into the tavern and sat down amidst the other men. I had been gone so long and had grown so much that the family did not at first know me. And another, and perhaps a stronger reason was, they had no thought or expectation of me, for they had all long given me up for finally lost. Davy Crockett. So he got inside the tavern, sat amongst the other travelers at the same table with the family. Finally, one of his sisters looked at him, recognized his features, and discovered she has just found her long-lost brother, David. For dear life is constant struggle, and the family farm bankrupts the Crockett's. In order to pay his debts, Davy's father is forced to make a difficult decision. Well, here's my boy. His name is David. Shake his hand, boy. Here's criminology professor Arnett Gaston and Stephen Harden. Davy Crockett becomes what is known as a bound boy. It's really a form of indentured service to pay off a debt. It was slightly above being a slave. This had a significant impact on Crockett. We shouldn't, as modern people, judge John Crockett too harshly. The role of children in the early 19th century was vastly different than it is now. Indeed, and when we come back, more of the remarkable life of David Crockett here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Davy Crockett paying off his father's debts by becoming an indentured servant. Let's pick up from there. After a year of grueling work, paying off his father's debts to Abraham Wilson and John Kennedy, Davy does something for himself. He understands he needs at least the rudiments of an education. And coincidentally, Kennedy's son runs a school. Davy strikes a deal. He works for the son two days a week in return for four days a week of schooling for six months. That's the only education uh, Crockett ever had. But in that time, he says, I learned how to read, I learned how to write, and I learned how to cipher. With just six months of formal schooling, young Crockett's real education comes from the frontier itself. It's time for you to become a man. It's a rite of passage, a tool men use to provide and protect, a symbol of independence and freedom, one Crockett grows to cherish. His skill with his rifle becomes his trademark. Crockett begins entering shooting matches and impresses all those present with his marksmanship. At 17, he and his flintlock long rifle, he names Old Betsy, often outshoot all the men, winning a steer or a hog as grand prize. He also begins hunting professionally, bringing game, especially bear and deer, to local towns and selling them for their hides and meat. But Crockett is not only driven by profit, he is also a man of charity. Here's Crockett's biographer, William Groneman. He was intensely loyal. When he was out hunting, he would always share the meat of his hunts with neighbors or people in need. His reputation begins to grow but evidently not enough to win himself a girl. Now Davy tried to make his own way. And he was consumed, as young men often are, with thoughts of finding a wife. He courted a young lady named Margaret Elder and took out a marriage license. But she jilted him at the altar and broke his heart. Then at a dance in 1806, he meets the beautiful Mary Polly Finley. He courts her for several months and they fall in love. Polly's mother is initially impressed by the young man, but soon is trying to dissuade her daughter from marrying him. This David Crockett is recklessly adventurous. Polly deserves a settled man with property. It becomes a battle between Crockett and Mrs. Finley. Finally, Davy simply rides up to the Finley house with a wedding party consisting of relatives, friends, and a minister in tow, and says he has come for Polly. William Finley convinces his wife to step outside and talk with Crockett. She surprises everyone by apologizing to her daughter's suitor for the way she has treated him and invites the wedding party into the Finley home. The two are married. Davy is turning 20, and Polly is 18. Crockett feels blessed. As he puts it, he has his own horse and his own rifle, and now his own wife. Says Crockett, I needed nothing more in the whole world. Crockett rents property near the Finleys and goes to work establishing a farm. Children come quickly. A son in 1807, another son in 1809, and a daughter in 1812. 
By the time his daughter is born, the family has moved farther west twice, and Crockett becomes a landowner rather than a renter. Here's Crockett from his 1834 autobiography. I found that farming wasn't what it was cracked up to be. It was therefore more necessary that I should hunt to get along. David is not only esteemed among the other hunters of the region, he's putting money in his pocket and food on the table. In 1812, war with Britain erupts again, and the Trans-Appalachian country is in the thick of it, not fighting British troops, but fighting their Indian allies. The Creeks are especially troublesome. The majority of them support the British and become known as the Red Sticks. A minority, the White Sticks, support the Americans. Receiving arms, trading goods, and occasionally military advisors from the British, the Red Stick Creeks begin raiding outlying American settlements. The Creek attack that caused Crockett and other Tennessee boys to volunteer for service occurs on August 30th, 1813 at Fort Mims, about 40 miles north of today's Mobile, Alabama. So-called fort was not much more than a palisade of logs around the homestead of Samuel Mims. With the Red Stick Creeks on the warpath, American settlers and peaceful Indians crowd into the fort for protection. By late August, the number of people inside the fort reaches 500, militiamen accounting for about half. At noon, on the 30th of August, upwards of a thousand Creek warriors assault the fort and finally set it ablaze, where everyone inside is forced to flee into the open. The Creeks grab small children by the ankles and swinging them through the air, dash out their brains on logs. Men, women, and children are scalped and dismembered. Pregnant women have their bellies split open and their fetuses ripped out, said one witness. The fearful shrieks of women and children put to death in ways as horrible as Indian barbarity could invent could be heard a half mile off. About three dozen Americans escape, some mortally wounded. Their descriptions of what the Creeks have done reverberate across the frontier. Remember Fort Mims becomes a rallying cry. Tennessee legislature authorizes the raising of an army of militiamen. Andrew Jackson is named the army's commander. At the time, Jackson is recovering from a severe wound suffered in a duel. Though he is too weak to get up from his bed, he accepts the appointment, saying he'll have an army on the march in nine days. He immediately issues a call for Tennesseans to volunteer for duty. Although Polly cries and begs David to stay home, he is one of the first to answer Jackson's call. Here's Crockett from his autobiography and Stephen Harden. If every man waited for his wife to be willing for him to go to war, we'd all be killed in our homes. These are the people who murdered his grandparents. These are the people who forced Crockett to leave a loving wife and family. Now we have David Crockett, the, the soldier, for the first time in his life. When Crockett joined the militia, 
He was perfect to chase rogue creeks and got to observe how they move through landscape. It was something that he, in fact, emulated. As the army moved southward, Crockett is put in command of a small party of men and is sent out on a scouting mission to find the Creek Indians. Among the volunteers, Davy is very popular. He is known to be honest. One man's account called David the merriest of the merry, keeping the camp alive with his jokes and stories. During the harsh winter, David spends his own money to buy blankets for the soldiers. In just two weeks, Crockett finds them, penetrating deep into Creek country. This gives Jackson all the information he needs to attack. Split the men into two columns. We'll arrive here before the sun arises. Cross the river at the low point here and here. Yes, sir. In the early morning hours on November 3, 1813, Crockett and 900 other Tennessee militia, under the immediate command of John Coffey, race ahead and surround the Creek village of Tallaloosahatchee. There are dozens of cabins there, with more than 200 well-armed Creek warriors in them. Coffey has his volunteers encircle the village, and then sends a portion of his force in a feint at the center cabins. The trap works, and the Red Stick Creek warriors are all killed, while 84 women and children are taken prisoner. One of the children, a 10-month-old boy orphaned by the fight, is about to be killed by squaws when the troops intervene. He is carried to Andrew Jackson, who takes him into his tent and coaxes him to drink a mixture of brown sugar and water. The boy becomes Andrew Jackson, Jr. A week later, at Talladega, Crockett is in even a bigger battle when a thousand Creek warriors come rushing out of the woods. The warriors came yelling on and continued till they were within shot of us, and we fired and killed a considerable number of them. They broke and ran across our line where they were fired on, and so we kept them running under heavy fire until we had killed upwards of 400 of them. Davy Crockett. And when we come back, we continue the story of Davy Crockett here on Our American Stories. And when we last left off with Davy Crockett and the Tennessee militia battling against the British-backed Red Stick Creek Warriors, who was in the War of 1812, let's continue with this story. The War of 1812 is over in March of 1815, after a treaty is signed recognizing a military stalemate. Crockett returns to his family and home in the backwoods of Tennessee, but his bliss is short-lived. No sooner had he returned home than Polly died. She had been fine after the birth of their third child, Margaret, but she soon took ill and passed on rapidly. Davy was devastated. Death entered my humble cottage 
and tore from my children an affectionate and good mother and took from me a tender and loving wife. Crockett forges on as a widower and a year later marries Elizabeth Patton, a widow with two small children of her own. She lost her husband in the Creek War. Crockett will father three children with her. He moves west again in 1817 to Lawrence County, Tennessee. And at the same time, he began his political career. First as magistrate, later as colonel of the local militia regiment, thus the title Colonel Crockett. And soon he began to think about running for the state legislature. Crockett's reputation as a frontiersman and soldier make him a standout candidate. He becomes the voice of laborers, tradesmen, pioneers, and farmers, those building America into the powerhouse it's becoming. His campaign style is simple, one that involves whiskey drinking and laughable storytelling. It's hot as blazes out here. I bet you all are thirsty. We need to wet our whistle. Here's his historian, David Eisenbach. I hope I get your vote. You got my vote, sir. Yes, sir. Good. David Crockett was a politician. The frontiersman was part of his image-making campaign in order to get elected uh, to a population that did not want to hear from uh, the old-time politicians. When Crockett's elected to the United States Congress, he arrives in Washington and still takes the floor of the House pretty much dressed in his buckskins. In 1821, he's elected to the Tennessee General Assembly and re-elected in 1823. He's elected in a landslide to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1826 and re-elected in 1828. David Crockett looms huge in the notion of what the American frontier was. He became a symbol of possibility, of hope, that the common man could actually rise to great heights. A man with six months education ends up in the halls of Congress. It's a uniquely American story. Andrew Jackson becomes president in 1829, and the year after he signs the Indian Removal Act, which Crockett, to Jackson's dismay, opposes. With Crockett running for re-election, Jackson backs his opponent, William Fitzgerald, who immediately begins running a smear campaign against Crockett's character. At a campaign stop in northwest Tennessee, Crockett confronts Fitzgerald. Forget Davy Crockett. I will give you the real voice of Tennessee in Washington. When Crockett and Fitzgerald arrived for one of their co-stump speeches, Crockett stood up and strode toward the stage and said, you know, if you continue with these casting aspersions, I'm going to give you a country caning. Fitzgerald leveled a pistol at Crockett's chest and said, take one more step and it'll be your last. I suggest you leave. In addition to his moral flaws, it would appear that Mr. Crockett is not quite as tough as he claims. 
The event with William Fitzgerald and the pistol was devastating to Crockett. He had run part of his campaign on his courage, and here he was publicly slinking away in front of someone. It was kind of an assault to his manhood. After a brutal campaign, Crockett loses a stunning upset in his re-election bid in 1830. When Crockett lost his bid for Congress, he sort of slunk home with his tail between his legs. He was now broke, arriving to find out that his, his wife had also left him and he was living alone. It was a very low, low point in his life. That is until a play opens on April 25th, 1831 in New York City. One of the things that revitalized Crockett and his career was the creation of this play called The Lion of the West, which was clearly uh, a depiction of Crockett. At the beginning, Crockett was sort of offended by this. He felt like he was being made fun of, but as it turned out, the play actually made him an international celebrity. When Crockett loses his election bid for a fourth term in 1834, he starts thinking about moving to the Mexican held territory of Texas. Pioneers looking for cheap land stream across modern-day Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas into a new frontier full of opportunity. By 1836, 30,000 Americans have moved to Texas. Davy Crockett is one of them. By the time the 49-year-old Crockett reaches Memphis, some 30 like-minded friends have joined him. The night before they cross the Mississippi, a celebration is held in his honor. Bar hopping finally takes the revelers to Neil McCool's. They hoist a whiskey-filled Crockett up on a counter. He stands up, surveys the crowd, and says, You may all go to hell. I'm going to Texas. Here's historian Donald Frazier. The Texians were essentially the Anglo settlers in Mexican Texas. They'd started coming in in the last days of the Spanish regime and the first days of the new Mexican Republic. These guys were coming to Texas in order to make Texas into a new America. Like the United States, Mexico is a new country. It has recently won independence from Spain. One of the heroes of Mexico's war against Spain is General Santa Ana. He is now elected the Mexican president. Bit by bit, the ruthless Santa Ana, who promotes himself as the Napoleon of the West, seizes more power. He raises taxes, takes away freedoms. Now the angry Texians are calling for revolution. They want independence from Mexico. In response, Santa Ana sends 500 troops to confiscate weapons from the Americans. When the Texans refuse to surrender their guns, Santa Ana makes plans to retaliate. What began as a fresh start in Texas is now a call to arms. Sam. I'd be happy and honored to fight for the future of the Republic of Texas. Commander of the Texian Army, General Sam Houston, 
dispatches Crockett and his companions to a garrison where the Texian soldiers recently expelled Mexican troops, seizing control of the former Spanish mission, now a military fortress called the Alamo, located in San Antonio. They arrive at the Alamo on February 8, 1836. And when we come back, we continue the story of Davy Crockett. And there aren't many like this in American history. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. we continue with the story of Davy Crockett and let's pick up where we last left off with the arrival of Davy and his fellow soldiers at the Alamo on February 8, 1836. Y'all halt right there and state your business. We're volunteers from the United States here to fight for the Republic of Texas. Open the gates up. William Travis who is in command of the Texas regulars gets word of an advancing Mexican army. Santana advances north. Here's Crockett from his autobiography. Take note. When this war is won and Texas has achieved her independence, these people are going to need a strong leader. And I intend to give them what they need. On February 22nd, the San Antonians celebrate George Washington's birthday, dancing and eating tamales and enchiladas. What Crockett and those stationed inside the walls of the Alamo, including numerous women and children, don't know is that an enraged Santa Ana and his army of nearly 2,000 soldiers will arrive the following day and surround the Alamo. If you're going to teach these Texans a lesson, you need to teach them that lesson at the Alamo. So the first thing he does is try to scare them. Raises a black flag of no quarter. The black flag means? None of you will be spared. And he sets his guns up in strategic position to begin bombarding the Alamo. Several different times during the siege, the sharp shooting of Crockett and his Tennesseans are instrumental in driving back the Mexicans. Crockett is living up to his reputation. What people need to understand about the Battle of the Alamo is that it is a siege. And this battle lasted 13 days. After one of the battles, William Travis writes, The Honorable David Crockett was seen at all points animating the men to do their duty. Colonel William Travis, 1836. March 5th. 1836. Starving, sleep-deprived, and outnumbered more than 10 to 1, Davy Crockett and some 190 Texians refused to surrender and prepared to fight to the death. Here's the author of Lone Survivor, retired U.S. Navy SEAL, Marcus Luttrell. Man, there's a thing that happens when death's at the door. Most people don't know when the Reaper's going to show up, right? You just kind of... Hopefully you, you die in peace or you die quickly. 
when you see the Reaper standing outside the door and you know he's coming in here for us, your world just kind of lends perspective in that moment. What was important, what's not important, who I wish I would have talked to. Man, it's a hell of a thing to, to go through that. Musket! Musket! Santa Ana is relentless, accepting heavy losses to breach the fortress. On the morning of March 6th, he launches a massive assault. So he was willing to send a political message both to the United States and to the people of Mexico using the blood of his men as the ink for this missive. According to Susanna Dickinson, who was there throughout the siege and is one of the non-combatants crowded into Alamo's chapel, Crockett steps into the chapel and says a prayer before joining his Tennesseans defending the South Wall. Crockett and all the Tennessee boys fire their rifles until out of ammunition and then use those rifles as clubs. Here's retired U.S. Army General David Petraeus. Davy Crockett did what many American patriots have done, and that is decide to stay and fight for a cause in the face of an attacking enemy. And it speaks volumes about him uh, and about his character. After 90 minutes of furious fighting, it's over. The Mexican army takes the Alamo. All of the fort's defenders are killed. As we passed through the enclosed ground in front of the church, I saw heaps of dead and dying. 182 Texans and 1,600 Mexicans were killed. I recognized Colonel Crockett lying dead and mutilated between the church and the two-story barrack building, and even remember seeing his peculiar cap lying by his side. Susanna Dickerson, Alamo Survivor, 1836. There are approximately 25 different accounts of how Crockett died at the Alamo. There's no way to know because there are no credible witnesses to it. All I can tell you is Crockett became a Texas icon by dying here. He was actually only in Texas two months before he met his death at the Alamo. From the smoking ruins of the Alamo, the nation will soon learn that Davy Crockett gave his life defending Texas and the American dream. General Sam Houston calls on Texans to avenge Crockett's death and remember the Alamo becomes their rallying cry. Hundreds of angry Texans are drawn to the cause of independence. In a little over a month, on April 21, 1836, Sam Houston and his troops defeat Mexican forces and capture Santa Ana, gaining their independence. Nine years later, Texas will become the 28th U.S. state. Davy Crockett may well have perished at the Alamo, but the Crockett of legend has just begun. The Crockett legend easily transfers from stage to motion pictures, where he is always featured as the hero and always in a coonskin cap. On the night of December 15, 1954, America's first ever television miniseries begins airing on Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. 40 million people, almost one-fourth of all American television sets, glow with a black and white image 
of a young Texan named Fess Parker, starring as Davy Crockett on ABC. And now, Walt Disney. It's characteristic of American folklore that most of our favorite legends and fables are based on the lives of real men, like Davy Crockett of Tennessee. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. And the show's theme song, A Ballad of Davy Crockett, becomes number one on the music charts for months. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Walt Disney creates a new series called Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. It's positioned perfectly because America is still in the post-war era. Uh, it believes strongly in patriotism. And along comes Davy Crockett, another effort to re rekindle the light of the hero that people have forgotten for many, so many years. And it's with this timing that Crockett emerges again as a monumental hero in America's past. And he does it in such a way that he captures the imagination of a whole television crowd that remembers him as, as coonskin caps and uh, a host of other kitsch in pop culture. In America, the Crockett craze certainly took off with the first episode. Well, everyone was really taken aback and unaware. Uh, they didn't have any marketing ready like they would today. It was just something that had to be developed after the fact. But quite soon we had little boys and girls running around in coonskin caps and full buckskins, uh, rifle trying to hunt bear just like Davy Crockett did, trying to talk like Fess Parker did. But others made do with imagination and a good stick. And they played out the Battle of the Alamo in backyards all across America. Of course, more often than not, Davy Crockett won his last battle because historical fact was pretty irrelevant to toddlers in America. Davy Crockett has had a remarkable afterlife, growing to proportions that no one at the time of his death could have ever imagined. New Crockett's have been created, meeting the needs of new generations of Americans. And I think it's safe to say that Davy Crockett will always live in the American heart. At least so long as Americans cherish decency and freedom. And great job on that, Greg. And thanks to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen and Vigilantes. We're lucky to have him. We're honored to have him. What a professor he was for so many years out on the West Coast, any students lucky enough to have studied under him, and Greg Hengler did, well, they'll be happy to hear his voice on our national show telling stories about this country. Cal State, Northridge, UCLA, Pepperdine, that's where Dr. Roger McGrath taught. And again, we've all had those teachers who brought history to life, and they're a blessing, and we need more of them now than ever here in this great country. This is Lee Habib, Davy Crockett's story, the story of the American frontier here on Our American Stories. Fought single-handed through the Indian War Till the creeks was whipped and peace was in store And while he was handling this risky chore Made himself a legend forevermore Davy, Davy Crockett The man who don't know fear 
went off to Congress and served a spell, fixing up the government and laws as well. Took over Washington, so I heard tell, and patched up the crack in the Liberty Bell. Davy, Davy Crockett, seeing his duty clear. When he come home, his politicking was done. Why, the Western March had just begun. So he packed his gear and his trusty gun and lit out a grinning to follow. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And if you would care to sign up for our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll promise you our five best stories of the week, transcribed if you'd like to read them, and if you'd love to hear the terrific production values that we bring to each and every story, you can listen to them. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter. Send us your email address. And we'll give you our five best stories each week. We love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to history and to sports. And we love talking about, well, innovation and engineering. And the Lockheed SR-71, known as the Blackbird, is a long-range Mach 3 strategic reconnaissance aircraft that was operated by the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 1998. At sustained speeds of more than Mach 3.2, the plane was faster than the Soviet Union's fastest interceptor, the MiG-25, which also could not reach the SR-71's altitude. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. And now we bring you to Major Brian Schull, U.S. Air Force retired, who relays the true story of a ground speed check while piloting the SR-71 Blackbird over Southern California. It's called the LA Speed Story. And I, it was just a story about one day it was really cool being an SR-71 pilot. Walter and I were doing a training mission around the United States where you just were building up hours and time. And we take off out of Beale, hit a tanker in Idaho, rip on up to uh, Montana, zip across Denver, hang a right turn in Albuquerque, out over Los Angeles, up to Seattle, back into Sacramento, two hours, 21 minutes. And you just do that for, and you do it backwards, and you hit a tanker. It was just, just to gain crew coordination, get, build your hours. We're on our last training mission. We're over Tucson. I can see downtown LA from Tucson. We're at 89,000 feet. I can see the whole western United States bathed in a warm October fall glow. I can see the chain of Rocky Mountains from Canada to New Mexico. I could, I could just see the most beautiful picture laid at my feet in this air as smooth as glass, not a gauge moving in the cockpit. It was perfect. Now I'm thinking, we bad. <laughs> and I feel sorry for Walter because he has to monitor five radios in the back seat, so I flipped the switch up just to listen. and. L.A. Center is controlling, they control all, when you fly southwest there, the guy's controlling everybody. But we're above controlled airspace. So they have us on their scope, but they're not talking to us. Now there's controllers all over the country, Jacksonville Center, Chicago Center, Seattle Center, you know. It's the same guy. They all talk the same. And it's really cool the way they talk, because they make you feel important as a pilot. They don't just say, yeah, okay, here's your thing. 
they make you feel really cool. So sure enough, this was pre-GPS days. Some Cessna guy has to know his ground speed. Uh, LA Center Cessna November Tango Alpha, you got a ground speed readout for us? Now Center would like to say, who cares, get off free. <laughs> but no, he'll talk to him like he's John Glenn. Cessna November Alpha, we show you 90 knots, 90 knots on the ground. And they do that sing-song, but that's how they talk. And it makes you feel kind of cool. Right after that, a twin bonanza came up to pimp the guy for speed, I guess. And, LA Center, Twin Beach, uh, whatever. You got a ground speed read up for us? And Center likes it. God, it's Friday. Why me? God, please, just get off. But he's going to talk to him like he's Air Force One. Twin Beach, shall we show you 121, two, zero knots on the ground. And right after that, a Navy F-18 out of Lemoore popped up on frequency. And you knew it was a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. Center Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator and that million dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads up display. Why is he calling Center to broadcast his speed? I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Dusty 5-2, we show you 620, 620 knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. And a 12-year-old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> And I thought, oh, no, wait, Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now. And I, I went, no, it's the Navy that must die. They must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I, well, I'll upset Walter, and I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment, I heard a click of the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. And his best innocent voice L.A. Center, Aspen 3-0, have you got a ground speed readout for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on Freak, like all oh, the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's, it's just a pilot thing. But Center had to give you that same voice. Aspen 3-0, we show you 1,992 knots <laughs> across the ground. When I knew I was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, Center, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block. And what a voice, and that is the sound of America's best. The humor. Well, that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Bring it direct to you. And that's, well, that's U.S. Air Force retired pilot Brian Shule telling a story and just, well, shooting it a little bit. And we bring it to you here on Our American Stories. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. And just as important, 
Stories like this, we want to hear them from you. You're in the military, wherever you are, whatever walk of life, musician, teacher, share your story with us. We'll shoot it right back at you here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories, and we broadcast out of a small college town called Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. We're a bit spoiled in this part of the country when it comes to food, especially barbecue. Every once in a while, we like to get out of the studio and hit the road to track down some of the finest eats in the South. Here's Jesse. Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi is one of those places that instantly takes you back to a time and place that stays original in some of the best ways possible. Pulled pork, tamales, fried chicken, and unforgettable, subtle barbecue sauce. It all started here in 1924, founded by Abraham Davis. I was hoping you'd ask me questions. I'll try to do that. I'm not as good as my dad. This is Pat Davis, Abraham's grandson, and the current owner of Abe's Barbecue. My grandfather was an immigrant from Lebanon. Came over around 1900. He was uh, 14 years old. And he came with his two younger siblings. That was it. In the bottom of a a freighter, I guess, or with them cows and the goats and in the bottom he would go upstairs and get food and bring it down to his younger brother's sister then he somehow got to north mississippi i know i don't know how that happened um as he got a little bit older he started peddling to the uh, farm workers on horseback he'd take them linen and socks dresses just different things that i'll i've heard this from my grandmother and, and my father in 1924, he started what Abe's Barbecue. It was Delta Inn, but it was actually just a, a barbecue shack, a one-room deal on 4th Street and Florida. That was the intersection. Um, sometimes in the, I guess it was in the 40s, the high, that was the main drag that he was on. They, they moved it to where we are now. The main drag came sort of like a bypass. So he moved from the 4th Street location to this location here. And they built this building. This is the second building on this lot. It was built in 1959. So we've been in this building since 1959, on this lot since the mid-40s, from what I've heard. Located at the intersection of highways 49 and 61, this is one of several places in the state of Mississippi, believed by many to be Robert Johnson's legendary crossroads, which brings in tourists by the busload. People from all over the world. I mean, it really is amazing to see the folks that do come through. Clarksdale isn't just a tourist attraction. It's a real place 
and so is Abe's Barbecue. Pat Davis was raised in this restaurant when his dad was in charge. I mean, he would leave me here with um, two guys back, I guess I would have been in the early 70s. I was 11, 12 years old, and, and we'd all, they'd run, they took care of me like, you know, uncles, and we'd run the place by ourselves. This was in the afternoon when Dad would go home and take a break. He would work in the morning and come back in the evening. It's not uncommon to see a customer loading up on a case of Abe's barbecue sauce. They sell it at the counter, and you can buy it online at abesbarbecue.com. It makes for some of the best pulled pork sandwiches you've ever had. We cook with um, pecan wood. Probably use pecan all the time, you know, like a hickory tree. And because it's hard to get hickory here, we do have a, a lot of pecans. We have pecan orchards, so it's easier to get pecan wood. Um, and I think that the difference, I mean, you could cook barbecue at your house over a smoker. I can cook it in my house over a smoker. It's, that's basically the same, you know. But the barbecue sauce is where it's different, I think. Our sauce is on a tangy side. It's not sweet. Um, I mean, people just tend to gravitate towards it. They like it. Well, most, most do. And I have people that don't like it. I had a guy come in a couple of months ago from Memphis, and he's never been through here, ate it. I didn't like it, didn't like it at all. So I didn't. Even, I just didn't charge him. So he left. Promise, he came back within like 10 days. He said, man, I don't know what it is. It hit me. He said a couple of days ago, I got to get one more of those things. He said he came back and paid for the one he ate. I didn't charge him for it, too. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty cute story. Abe's also has some incredible tamales. It's a staple here in Mississippi from generations of Mexican labor. They made them and sold them in little push buggies. Daddy did tell me that, down on the city streets. And um, I guess maybe when they went home during the off-season, people missed them. So my grandfather apparently learned how to make it from someone, and he makes, we make them now. Well, we don't actually make them now. We have someone make them for us, and we cook them here. We get them here. But we have made them uh, back in the mid-'70s to in about the middle-'80s. But it's, it was a job. And then... Um, the guy that was making them back here with us couldn't make them anymore, so we just found someone to make them for us. Mississippi being the clash of cultures that it sometimes is, the founder of Abe's did the right thing. A group of young black students were sent or were coming to restaurants, and they came to Abe's and, and grandfather let them in. Most other restaurants did not let them in, and I think the other Lebanese family at Rest Haven let them in their restaurant. And Dad said there were the only two restaurants in town that weren't in a lawsuit. I think we get along really well in this town. You know, people may say, you know, it's a lot of racism. It, I mean, I'm sure you have your pockets of trouble. But overall, Clarksdale has a, a really good-hearted community, all of them, you know. I've moved off before. But it's not home. I mean, you come back, it's still, I can go to Walmart, man. I, I just love to see people, hey, 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 hey. You know everybody. You know, you, or you know them or you know somebody in the family. Wintertime um, is, is good because we got a lot of hunters coming in and uh, family, families coming back for Thanksgiving with their families, you know, to be with their parents or grandparents. So the holidays are good. Hunting season's good. We have downtime when the farmers start getting in the field here in another week or two. Well, they would like to be there another week or two. We'll have rain for another week or two. But um, when the farmers start planting, we slow down because they're, they're kind of can't. And then it's slow, it gets better for us in the summertime because they're sort of laid back on the farming part. Then when they start harvesting, we get slow again. 
and back to that regular cycle hunting season starts back up and holidays start piling on so we pick back up again yeah business has been good uh, i think tourism has been a boom for this place if it wasn't for tourism i think it'd be a lot different but that's what i'm seeing i mean i you know when it first started 20 years ago i, mean, I said why would people want to come here you know and but they started and they haven't stopped and it's gotten more and more Every year we have a, uh, well, we've had it for the last, I'm saying like 20 years, a Juke Joint Festival in April. And they send a group, four or five bands to, that play at different intervals outside. And we have people outside. Well, a couple of years ago it was raining. The first group went outside, started raining, they had to move inside. Well, the room that they came to was only, they had to put their band in, was, was probably 14 by 24. And it was in the, at the end of the restaurant. Well, they still had to, uh, for some reason, they couldn't uh, modify their amps. They had to leave everything on like it was outside. It was the loudest packed house I've ever seen in my life. I mean, people were standing up in this room. Everything was full, just stand-up room only. And, and the band was so loud, I don't know how they could even, the people, that, they, you couldn't get away from the noise because they, it was just too small of a, an area. And that's, that, that was unique when it happened to us. Uh, we don't have that much happen to, like that. We had no other plan. There's no other way to, to let them play. So we had four bands playing in here at full throttle in this small room. Visit Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi at the crossroads of U.S. 49 and 61 for Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And you were listening to Pat Davis and he's the grandson of Abraham who started Abe's Barbecue, and it's an institution here in northern Mississippi. Everyone thinks it's the best. Well, actually, I do, and everybody here argues about what the best barbecue is, and, well, in this one, we don't do a lot of opinions on this show, but I'm right. And because it's Lebanese, probably, I have a little bit of bias. And by the way, Lebanese people found their way up and down the Mississippi River, so too did Jews, and that was to trade, to peddle, to make a buck and to call this great new place, America, their homes. Abe's Barbecue, the story of a family business, a multi-generational family business, here in the Mississippi Delta. This is Our American Story. Thank you. 
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Rule of Law series with our own Alex Cortez, who brings us today's feature on the story of the Constitution. And once again, with Hillsdale College President Dr. Larry Arn as our guide. On July 4, 1776, the American colonies declared their independence from Great Britain, which practically meant they were declaring war. If you imagine George Washington with his army in 1777, say, pick a year, pick any year in the American Revolution, and most of it was bad for him. Imagine him. He's never run a big army before. They're making war on the most powerful government on earth. They don't know how. There's nobody really with any experience to fight these British guys who know how to run an army, and a lot of them are very talented people. They got wealth, they got establishment, they're old. And yet, they won. And that they'd have yet another terrifying task ahead of them. Perhaps a more daunting task if you could believe it creating a country, which meant to them creating a constitution. Well, it's, of course, it's nobody's claiming it's perfect. It's not a perfect document. It's just the best thing of its kind ever. Their constitution would create a limited set of powers given to the federal government and a bill of rights that would ensure that the natural rights of the people could never be violated. In essence, their constitution, led in drafting by James Madison, would establish the rules of the road in America, the rule of law that would both apply to and can be created by all equally. Madison says, we're not going to do it in the old way. In the old way, here's what you would do. Aristotle writes that the city is made up of the one and the few and the many. And the one is a monarch, maybe. And the few are the aristocrats, maybe. And the many are the democracy, the people. And the fundamental conflict in society, he says, is between the many poor and the few rich. And so the way you make a good government, according to classical political philosophy, is to mix up the powers have an aristocratic house that has some power and have a democratic house that has some power and have a king who has some power and then they cancel each other out. And you have to understand that the people who made the American Revolution had read these old books and they simply refused to place in the American Constitution any power to any privileged class by birth or other station. Madison writes, it is essential to a Republican government that it be derived from the great body of the society, not from an inconsiderable proportion or a favored class. Otherwise, a handful of tyrannical nobles exercising their oppressions might aspire to the rank of Republican and call themselves that. In other words, we are not going to do what was done before. In fact, to some extent, by the way, done in the English constitutional monarchy. We're not going to pick out some people and call them special and give them special power. But if you think for a minute, that makes the problem worse. 
because now you're going to have a majority and that is to say me on a good day is not a bad fellow and me on a bad day is pretty likely to do something wrong and so how are you going to give all of the power to the people and keep them from abusing it and ironically enough their answer after expelling distant british rulers was to create distance madison in the 63rd federalist says that our government is unique because it is the first one in which the sovereign people are excluded entirely from making the operations of the government. What I mean by sovereign is being the source of political authority. In the United States of America, the people are sovereign. We act under our equal and natural right to consent to the government over us. Now, who was sovereign in England? The answer to that is the king in Parliament was sovereign. And that meant that the king working through the Parliament was the source of British law. And there was a constitution, and he wasn't to violate it, and it was unwritten, but it meant something. But you couldn't say that the ultimate tribunal Abraham Lincoln liked to call the people as they are organized under the Constitution the highest tribunal. You couldn't say that that was the people in England. And if the king and the parliament were sovereign together, then they were the executive and the legislative branches. And if you think about that for a minute, that means that when the sovereign actually sits down to make a law, that being the highest authority in the land, the sovereign can do whatever it wants. And in our country, that never happens. Compare it to Athens. The way it worked in Athens was the free citizens, who were a minority of all the citizens, less than a third, they all had the power to vote. They would gather in the amphitheater on the Parthenon, and they would have an assembly, and they would vote. But they were forever turbulent, right? Because once they got in the room there, they'd have a big argument, and they could vote just about whatever they wanted to, because they were the sovereign and they were right there meeting at that moment. And they were forever doing crazy things like uh, sending off an expedition by sea to go conquer some colony. And then the next week, they'd hear a different speech and they'd change their mind and they'd send off another group to go stop the first group. Very changeable, right? But also unlimited because the sovereign was meeting to run the government. And in our country, the majority gets that the majority of our representatives in Congress also be in order except they never just get to sit down and do it because think what happens aren't you frustrated by politics sometimes when I was younger especially I'd be given to think you know if I could just have a week <laughs> to fix this you know stupid what they're doing you know and you custom and carry on but in our country, you don't get to do it. And think what gets checked by that. Because first of all, all of the people who are in the government know that the ultimate authority is out there watching them. And they can chuck them out. Isn't that good? 
that means they got a fear, right? Where's the king when he met? You know what he kept saying back to the colonies is, I'm the king, as was my father before me and as will be my son after me. And it doesn't make any difference what you think about that. Nobody gets to say that. And so the government is checked. Consent, except now put in representation. They work for us. But the second thing that is checked is us. Because we can't do anything right now, today. Isn't that interesting? That means that, you know, almost every American, if you just look at the polls, would like to make very large changes to the government. It's not true that they all want to change it in the same direction, but they can't really do anything right now. It takes years to do anything. And what's that about? It just means that we have to wait for elections to act, but think for a minute, also in between the elections, we're encouraged to talk. The original scheme was you can talk all the time, you're able to act only certain times, which if you think about it, kind of boils down to the idea, think before you act, talk it through. And when we come back more from Dr. Larry Orne, the story of the Constitution of the United States, it doesn't get better than this, folks. is our American stories and we continue with the story of the US Constitution and with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And here he is talking about the benefits of our representative government that the Constitution created. The second thing that happens because of representation is that things can get bigger. You know, if you've got the political system of Athens and the people have to get together in the legislature and vote, it means they can't live very far away from each other. Also, by the way, it means they can't vote very often because they've got to be making a living. What are they going to do? All sit in the legislature all the time? So it becomes possible for the country to get bigger if it's a representative country. And you know, there was a debate at the time of the revolution about how big it should be, but the people who won the argument about the Constitution, the Federalist Party. They argued very well that the states themselves were already pretty big. They were thinking of a big country, and you can have a big country, and if you have a big country, there'll be, Madison makes this point, a lot of interests. They'll multiply. There'll be more than one or two. There'll be more than a hundred. There'll be more than a thousand. And because of that, it'll be harder for any one of them to dominate. And you think they're just encouraging us by this mechanism of bigness and representation for us to have a whole bunch of factions and them all to cancel each other out. And that's partly true. But it's not the whole story. Because Madison also says, when you're debating over a big expanse, like if uh, you and your four friends that you've had all your life get together and you've had a conflict with another three friends or even enemies and they're not there and you get to talking about them and it's just you you know probably you'll go pretty far and say some stuff that's more than what you mean 
But if you have to announce it out in public to a whole bunch of people you don't know, you might be more careful. Madison writes in the 10th Federalist where he's writing about how you can multiply the interest and it'll be hard for any one of them to dominate. He also says, where there is a consciousness of unjust or dishonorable purposes, communication is always checked by distrust in proportion to the number whose concurrence is necessary. In other words, if you gotta to try to persuade a lot of people, you're gonna be careful what you say. And that's gonna make the public discourse better. The plan of the Constitution is drawing on the various aspects of human nature wish for honesty, understanding that we have a common connection with each other and each of us will do better if we all do better. They're trying to find a way to draw on all of those things to propagate for the first time in history for a long time a system of self-government. And that necessarily means that this representative system must also account for that other little aspect of human nature called self-interest. Madison writes that these people are going to get elected to these jobs and they're ambitious and they're going to want to take over as much of the government as they can and they're going to have to work with the others and the others are ambitious too and they're going to be in a kind of a struggle that's going to tend to bring them together. That too advance their own ambitions, they have to pass legislation. And to pass legislation, they have to work with these others who have their own ambitions. Ambition, he writes, must be made to counteract ambition. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of the government. But what is government itself? but the greatest of all reflections on human nature. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external or internal controls on the government would be needed. And that, it seems to me, is a sign of what they're after here, which is not just the lowest common denominator with these things. It is that, by the way. It is that, too. Self-interest. If I'll read you something from Abraham Lincoln. And, and I, I want you to understand that the action of self-interest can be a very powerful force for good. Lincoln is arguing against slavery once, and he says, uh, Free labor argues that as the author of man, that's capitalized author, he means God, the author of man makes every individual with one head and one pair of hands, it was probably intended that the head and the hand should cooperate as friends, and that that particular head should direct and control that particular pair of hands. As each man has one mouth to be fed and one pair of hands to furnish food, it was probably intended that that particular pair of hands should feed that particular mouth, that each head is the natural guardian, director, and protector of the hands and mouth inseparably connected with it, and that being so, every head should be cultivated and improved by whatever will add to its capacity for performing its charge. Now that's an interesting point, right? Because in the first part of that quote, what he means to say is, the best person to feed me if I'm hungry is me, right? But the second thing he says is, we're gonna to try to build a society where everybody gets a chance to do that. A chance to pursue their self-interest. 
only restricted by the rule of law, a few basic laws to ensure that we don't harm one another as we go about pursuing our own self-interest. And as we do so, we will coincidentally be helping each other more so than any other system in human history. The butcher, in seeking to take care of himself or his family, makes the best use of his labor, providing meat for folks like bakers, and with his reward uses it to purchase things that he's not so good at, such as the labor of the baker, which enables the baker to buy his meat or a car to get to work faster and bake more. In Adam Smith's famous example, minus the car, that wasn't around then. It took decades more of self-interest to get there. We talked a lot about the self now, and a limited government lets the self go about its day. But at the same time, you better watch out. It ain't no limp government. The government of the United States is the government that has won the two greatest wars in human history. And if you count the Civil War, also one of them, let's say three of the biggest five ever, it can act, but it is encouraged to be deliberative while it acts. In conclusion, two things that Dr. Arne believes we must watch out for as we live in the legacy of the Constitution. The first, he shows through a story of him being a new and naive university president and at one of the only places that refuses to take the federal government's money. Young and green and stupid. And I thought, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read Title IV of the Higher Education Act because that's the thing that we're giving up several million dollars a year not to have to abide by. I'd like to know what I get for not having the money. And so I called our lawyer. We, I don't think we still have him. I, I hope not. But uh, <laughs> for years and years, we kept a lobbyist in town whose job was to keep the government from giving us any money. It cost 30 or 40 grand a year to, get, to make that happen. And I called him up and I said, uh, you know, I want you to send me Title IV of the Higher Education Act if that is, in fact, the part that we are escaping by not taking all this dough. And he said, no use, no use in my sending it. And I said, why not? And he said, well, you won't be able to read it. And I said, uh, well, you know, I'm a reasonably intelligent man. Maybe I can read it. What are you, a lawyer? And, and he said, no, I said, I can't read it either. We keep a specialist to read it. And she's actually the only person I ever met who can read it. Now. Madison says that if the laws are so voluminous or changeable that you can't read them, then it doesn't matter if they're made by the right process. That there really can't be a rule of law if you can't reasonably understand the law. Dr. Arn couldn't understand them, and how many Americans have time to read a healthcare law that's over 2,700 pages? Or how about our representatives who passed it? It's believed that not a single one of them read the entirety of this law that they made. When it was challenged in the Supreme Court, justices with very different judicial philosophies were quite upset 
when it was suggested to them that they go through the whole law and decide which parts were constitutional. Justice Stephen Breyer said, so you propose that we spend a year reading all this? And the late Justice Scalia erupted, of course, with what happened to the Eighth Amendment. That's the one prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment. Now, here's the second thing we should watch out for, according to Dr. Arn. The government is so large now, and, you know, there's just thousands of things going on right this minute, you know? It's, we're probably worse governed now, significantly, than we were when this interview started. It's, how can you keep up with it? And that means that when it's so big, and so big in relation to the rest of the society, I think the gross domestic product of the United States is 15 trillion, and I think state, local, and federal spending is 6.7 trillion. Half, I think, would be seven and a half trillion. So we're 800 billion away. If it gets past that seven and a half, it just means in money terms, the government is larger than the rest of the society. How can the rest of the society watch it? And there you have it, Dr. Larry Orrin, president of Hillsdale College. We're continuing our Rule of Law series, the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear the Rule of Law series and all that we do. This is Our American Stories.